All right, well, let's go ahead and get started. We are continuing in our series, God and Government, talking about some of the essential issues, trying to build a Christian or a biblical worldview as it pertains to all of life. Being a Christian and being discipled as a Christian is more than just knowing the Bible verses, and um, you, you need to know how the Bible frames reality, how it frames the world around you. You need to have the Bible undergirding all of your decisions, and that takes time to build up a biblical worldview, and that's what this class is all about, is building up a biblical worldview as it pertains to God and his relationship to the governments of this world. It's, I, I, hate when, uh, I hate to see Christians arguing over the fruits or arguing over the branches when the problem is they have two different trunks. You all know that expression? You know what I mean? It's like they're fighting over the branches, and I'm reading their fights, and I'm thinking they have two different worldviews. They have the, the trunk of their tree is different. They don't realize it. And so they're arguing for no purpose whatsoever. It's going to solve nothing. You, ha- you have to get the, the trunk firmed up. You have to get the, the foundations firmed up. And then you work your way up into the branches and the fruits. And so the pastor's job is to build the, everyone with the same trunk. And over time, the branches start to look unified as well. So that's what we're doing here. We're establishing sort of the fundamentals to help you engage as you know, Christians in the political arena. Amen? Amen? All right, well, let's open up in prayer. Father, we ask for your help and guidance in this time. Our nation is most certainly in distress, under judgment, and seems to be disintegrating um, and at, a quick, at a quick pace. But Father, we pray that you would show us as Christians how you would structure society and how you would bless us if we would turn to you and give us the grace we need, even on a small scale as a church, to, to follow you in whatever political or civil opportunities that we might have. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. Amen. All right, um, God and government. Today we're talking about economic freedom. So last week we talked about limited government, briefly. We said that limited government is biblical government. The Bible limits government. Limits it by Christ's authority, God's ownership over the world, the depravity of sin, etc. But let me show you just real quick how this fleshes itself out. And um, before I go too far, if the, if the kids over there start screaming and it's really crazy, could one of y'all just walk over there and uh, calm them down? Just so some people have said they can't listen to the recording because of the screaming in the background the whole time. And uh, I frankly don't care that much, but... So there's a little low rumble, but if, if one starts going for the, <laughs> then we just go down there. You just open the door and be like, you're at a 12, I'm going to need you at about an 8. That's, that's what I, <laughs> All right, so if you believe in limited government, biblical government, then your civil government of an, as a nation is going to be restrained. It's going to be limited. We believe in self-government, right? The self must be controlled. Control yourself. We say to a mom or a dad or to a family, they have to be limited. They have to be restrained. To a church, it has to be restrained to its particular jurisdictions. You're not going to find pastors, um, good pastors, meddling in all your business. Right, I'm not, I'm not going to be asking you 30 questions about trying to meddle in every single... If you don't want to talk about it, I'm not going to talk about it. You understand what I mean? Um, we're, we're 
pastors don't have jurisdiction over all of life. The Bible has jurisdiction over all of life, but the, the um, office of pastor has its jurisdiction, its prerogatives, its restraint. And um, same with the civil magistrates. The Bible calls for the civil magistrates to control themselves and for the government to restrain itself to its jurisdiction. Make sense? Here's what we have from our country. In our country, we have a constitutional or covenantal authority. It was established at the beginning of our, our nation, a constitution. And what does that constitution do? Well, it is intended to limit the powers of the three branches of government. We understand that, right? When God established a monarchy in 1 Samuel chapter 8 and established Saul on the throne, he gave them a constitution to limit the powers of Saul, to limit the powers of the king. Of course, we know the kings of, of Judah and Israel dismissed limitations. They were tyrants, and they disregarded their constitution. Sound familiar, right? Where do you think the idea of a constitutional monarchy comes from? The idea of a constitution which would limit the power of the government. It comes from the Bible. So in many ways, although our constitution is not explicitly Christian, I wish it were. I wish, you know, I wish Jesus was named about you know, a couple dozen times. Um, even though it's not explicitly Christian, and I think that was a, a big mistake on their part, um, it does have the Bible as, a, as sort of a foundation and guardrails. Just the very concept of restrained, limited government by a constitution comes from the Bible. Moreover, in our own nation, we have diffused powers, supposed to, not centralized power. Do you all know what that means? Right? Uh, God always works through earthly diffused power. He established in the Old Testament, he established priests and kings. And then there were prophets and there were dads and there were moms. You understand what I mean? He, he works in this world through diffused authority. Pastors, elders, um, you know, lead pastors, associate pastors, counselors, moms, dads, mayors, sheriffs. He works through diffused power. Now, how is he able to do that? Because he is spirit, and, he has, and Jesus has sent his Holy Spirit to work in each of the hearts of every single one of his believers in this world. So Jesus does not require central centralized government, like a human would, or a devil. Do you understand what I mean? He doesn't require centralized, top-down hierarchy. Right? I think that is um, that idea of a centralized, singular hierarchy, top-down coercion and power, is antichrist. It's unbiblical. That's not how God works. God works grassroots from the bottom up, and he has the power to do so by his spirit. But the devil... In his uh, attempts at gaining dominion over earth, he must work through central planning because he is not omnipresent, nor is he omnipotent. He doesn't have a spirit sent into the world. And so he must have a tyrant. He has to have a small oligarchy or one, one person through which he governs all. And he has to do it by force because he doesn't have the power of regeneration. He can't change hearts. And so he has to use the force of the gun to extend his dominion. This is why we see in the history of the world, we see a struggle between tyranny and freedom. It's the, but only the kingdom of Christ offers freedom. And everywhere the kingdom of Satan's dominion extends, extends by power and force, you have slavery, tyranny, and oppression. 
And that's what we see in our own nation. That's really what's at the heart of our nation is a struggle between the, the kingdoms of, this, of, of Satan and the kingdom of Christ. And it is expressing itself in one demanding centralized power and the other demanding localized diffused power. So this should inform the way you vote. This should inform the way you think about politics. You see how it's not just about abortion. You're a one-ticket voter. No, 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 no. Please do not label me that. That, that, is, a, that is a propaganda. I'm not a one-issue voter. You understand what I mean? That's propaganda. Just because you don't know how deep all of this goes doesn't make me a one-issue voter. No, there is a life-and-death issue at stake when we're talking about central planning and diffused, decentralized governmental power. One is Christian, one is satanic. Make sense? Okay. Now, um, moving on, balanced power. So not only is it diffused, and our Constitution sets it up that way because it has a a biblical framework, um, it's also balanced so that the powers that be, the three branches of the federal government, are meant to balance each other out, right? I mean, you've all taken a basic civics course probably before the new textbooks came out, right? Um, They're supposed to balance each other out. Why? Because of the biblical principle of limited government. Why would government need to be limited? Because of sin, the authority of Christ, the word of God. We We went through that in the last class. And then expressed powers. In the Constitution, it, it delineates the powers that the federal government, and then a state constitution delineates the powers of a state government. They're not supposed to take for themselves that which they are not expressly given. When they take beyond what they are expressly given, they are going beyond their prerogatives. They are attempting to extend their dominion over the other spheres of life, the family and the church and are doing so in rebellion to King Jesus. So when we talk about the kingdom of heaven and its, and its uh, superiority or its, its um, um, supremacy over the kingdoms of this world, we mean decentralized, diffused, balanced, in full submission to Jesus, government magistrates. That's, that's what we're talking about here. Doing what they are expressly told they have the permission to do. Now, you can see how our nation has turned from Christ, and every single one of these biblical principles are now being directly violated. Now, it's nothing new. I'm sure everyone here who's been alive for more than a day realizes this is not new. This has been going on for 100 years. Our nation, apostasy doesn't happen overnight, right? But it seems to be, um, you know, speeding up. Seems to be speeding up. And and for, for Christians... If they are going to be politically active, if they're going to engage, they have to have this biblical worldview or they are wasting their time. They're they're arguing over the branches when the trunk is not established. They're up fighting on the seventh story and the foundation is cracking apart. No, Christians have to have this in place. And if Christians don't have this in place, their fighting is going to be irrelevant if they even fight at all. Most Christians don't believe in engagement they believe in abdicating the civil sphere to the devil, right? They take a hands-off approach. You know, the Bible says resist the devil and he'll flee. Well, they, they take a strategy of not resisting him, and so he doesn't flee. They do. We will, right? You think he's not going to come for us? No, definitely. 
We have to engage. We have to resist. We have to um, stop resting on our laurels, um, kicking back in the, in, the, in the lounge chair, and be active. If we won't be active for the good of our neighbors, then the devil's going to run our town. Do you understand what I mean? I'm not saying that I know how to do all this. I wouldn't, you know, I, I, don't, have any, I don't have any experience in that realm. But maybe some of our kids will, right? Maybe we'll raise the, our kids with the right mindset to be warriors and to engage for the cause of Christ. But they've got to have this biblical worldview or else they're just going to do things just like the world. Amen? All right. As our nation has turned from God to the age-old Western God of the Messianic state, civil gut, which just means the devil, um, civil government has grown at the expense of the other ordained governments. Only repentance from idolatry and worship of Christ can reverse this trajectory. You cannot have limited government in the civil realm if you do not have limited government in the self and in the family and in the church and limited by the, by the authority of Christ. If, if you're not going to do right by someone, if you're going to be lawless and you're going to be a tyrant in your own heart, then expect for a tyrant to, to, to rise up above you and to fill the void. If you, know, you see what I mean? If you're going to be subjected to the tyranny of sin, you're going to be subjected to the tyranny of the state. Free people are free. Enslaved people become enslaved. And we are already partially enslaved. You know, I like to say we're half-time slaves because about 50% of our income is stolen and distributed um, to the government. Y'all understand that, right? And we'll get to that in a little bit. So now some people would push back on me and say, hey, 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 the Bible is, is not an economics textbook. And it's not, of course. It's not an economic textbook. It's not a, you know, it's not a parenting course. But how could you possibly be a wise parent without it? How could you possibly engage in anything without it? It's not written as a formal textbook on every single science. But what is it? It provides the, the foundation. It provides the pillars. And it provides the guardrails. So that if you are within its boundaries and upheld by its truths, you can then innovate and you can discover and you can make some advances in that particular field. But if you're not undergirded by it or protected within its guardrails, you're dealing in the, in the area of darkness and falsehood. So look, this is what 2 Timothy 3.16 says, right? All scriptures breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that the man of God may be partially equipped for some good works, right? No, of course not. That the man of God might be complete, equipped for every good work, no matter what his calling is. It's not an economic textbook. It's the foundation and guardrails for anyone who wishes to engage in economics. So here's just a few examples. The prophets decried economic sins. What were some of the examples? Do you know? Yeah, sure. If you've read Amos or Obadiah, or, they're always talking about economic sins. Yes, Jude, did you have an example? The, uh, Eli's sons stealing the... Oh, yeah. They had, the, uh, they had the, the, the fork, it was the tongs, going around to everybody's um, stew pot, pulling out a little extra, ah, oh, you know. 
<laughs> going around to every, you have a barbecue and here comes Hophni and Phineas with the, with the tax man's uh, tongs. Uh, we'll take another, you know. Oh, yeah, that's, that's good. That was a great one, Jude. That's right. Ananias and Sapphira were most certainly uh, guilty of economic sins in the heart and in reality. Yes. In the sphere of the church. Zacchaeus, there you go. Zacchaeus is a perfect example. He was a civil, you know, official. He was a bureaucrat. And uh, he was engaged in um, making some people pay more than others in taxes. Uh, it's called extortion. Or, uh, or, you know, injustice. Yeah, they decried economic sins. Jesus taught with economic analogies. We know this. Paul wrote with economic metaphors. And he demanded economic justice and repentance. And we know that sin affects all of life. And so the the gospel also must affect all of life. As the Christmas carol says, as far as the curse might be found. If sin affects it, the gospel affects it. If sin degenerates it, the gospel regenerates it. Let's consider some examples. All right, Envy, that's an easy one. We'll start in the heart. Economic sins begin in the heart. With envy. Closely related is covetousness and jealousy. But do you all know the difference? Envy is worse. See, in covetousness, you want what is not prescribed to you. You want what's not your prerogative. You want to extend, uh, you want to engage in, um, in, you know, empire. You want what's not yours. You want to go beyond your boundaries and take your neighbors. That's what covetousness um, kind of is. Um, whether that be more money, more notoriety, more women, or more, um, uh, what's the other commandment? Um, you know, more stuff, more, more things, more possessions. Yeah. Um, that's uh, covetousness. It's the heart of all economic sins. And then jealousy, of course, can be good or bad, depending on what you're jealous for. Y'all know that, right? If it, now, how do we know the difference? Coveting and jealous. Yeah, that's close. Well, jealous, like if it actually belongs to you, you can be jealous. That's right. If it is your, if it's within the boundaries of your property, it is a, under your prerogative and jurisdiction, then you should be jealous for it. You should be jealous for your wife's affection. That belongs to you. That's yours. God gave it to you. You understand? You should be jealous for your own property. So when someone is trying to steal it from you, you know, that's, that's the right kind of jealousy. No, this is, this is. God gave this to me to steward, not you to steal. Um, but envy, though, goes a step further. Envy not only wants and wants and wants and wants, it has, it has its eyes on other people's to such an extent that you also don't want them to have it. So envy is... is you know, envy wants it, but envy also mainly doesn't want them to have it. Envy is sort of a spite against the neighbor. If the neighbor has privilege, envy accuses them of some sort of inequity, some sort of injustice, and demands the privilege for oneself. That's what envy is at heart. En- envy is, doesn't want someone else to have that wife or that property or that uh, income. And so out of hate, out of um, yeah, hate, hate of neighbor, they engage in activities to take that from them and redistribute it to themselves, right? 
It's the, the essence of our nation. Yeah. Our nation is engaged in, in b- trying to build a society that turns all of the Ten Commandments on its head. Right? Our nation is, a sta- is legalized theft, legalized murder, legalized adultery, celebrated adultery, and worse. We, we've turned the Ten Commandments would build a, a flourishing society. We flipped all those on their heads because at the top commandment, thou shalt have no other gods, we've turned that one on its head. We have another God. It's called the Messianic State or Satan, right? Satan promising the use of the Messianic State to build paradise without God. That's what we're engaged in. We are engaged in some form of um, Antichrist um, empire, and we are being disciplined for it. And uh, this is a, I'm trying to help people in our church get this in their bloodstream, get this in their worldview, because this is not something that is easy to comprehend. But, but once you do have a biblical worldview, then you can, you can see the headlines or you can deal with the branches accordingly. All right. And some folks coming in. Um, <clears throat> all right. Now, envy, of course, is exacerbated by scarcity. Y'all know what scarcity is. Uh, scarcity is... Nick, what's scarcity? This is your uh, field of study. You should be teaching this class. Yeah, not everybody gets to have all they want. That's right. And in some sense, this world has a scarcity. God has established it that way on purpose. He doesn't give everyone infinite. He gives to some one, to others five, and to others ten. So when you have envy in your heart and then things are not equally distributed by God, it creates a system where theft is encouraged and, and, and whatnot, you see? But now as a Christian, though, we recognize that scarcity is a part of this, this uh, world, but that it is not essentially a part of creation. It, it is um, because God is infinite and he is the creator. There's no scarcity within the character of God. Do you understand what I mean? So we as Christians, when we trust in God and believe that he's good, we know that the scarcity that we are experiencing is not because we're victims, you know, in a, in a scarce world. And the only way we're going to get ahead is if we take what they have. We recognize that we, though we're experiencing scarcity, are experiencing it by God's sovereign choice, that he could just as easily tomorrow you know, pour all sorts of blessings and abundance on us. So we walk by faith. We don't see what our neighbor has as um, directly proportioned to what we have. You, you see what I mean? But for someone who has a, doesn't have a worldview of the creator, sovereign God, scarcity and envy means that everything they see that other people have, in deep in their bones, they believe that they, them having it means I don't get to have it. Do you see what I mean? This is why someone who was born and raised in government schools or, or um, who, whose family wasn't Christian, deep in their bones is a belief that disparity is injustice, period. Any form of disparity is injustice, period. And, and, and then underneath that is trusting in the state by force, top-down, to distribute those resources and privileges so that there might be equality, all done out of a heart of distrust of God and envy. Right? This is what the religion of our country. Now, it is true that some people have because they stole. 
But today, that's mostly true of the government, not your neighbors. Because your neighbors might have guns, but the government has all the guns. You understand what I mean? So if we all want to, we could all unite under this, that there is a great disparity caused by an injustice, by theft, that the goodness of this land is being swallowed up by greedy, unjust oppressors. And they all work for the federal government. And they all do it by force and by guns. This, this is the boogeyman. This is the monster. Right? This is the virus, which is the real pandemic in our country. And, and, and you only see that, though, if you have a biblical worldview. If, if, you, if you have an, an unchristian worldview, you can love Jesus and you can know a lot of Bible verses. But if you don't understand the, the covenant that God has with man... If you don't understand that the universe doesn't have a lid on it, you understand? That scarcity is all sovereignly chosen. You see? I mean, there's just so much here that I, I, I want you to understand. Yes? This week in my class, my four-year-olds, we read the story of feeding the 5,000. Like how he had, and I was like, what if Jesus had taken your food, Calvin, and tried to feed the whole school? Like, he could have done it. Like, out of nothing, out of your lunch, he made enough to feed everybody. It didn't run out. It's a great lesson. And meanwhile, we're fighting over the couple of fish and the loaves. It's like, wait, what? We're fighting over crumbs. Something just as miraculous, in my opinion. Like, we hadn't even discovered oil until 1850, right? Like, what else could there possibly be out there that we hadn't figured out? Just imagine if we would trust Jesus. He could turn every fish into 5,000 fish. He is an abundant God and a good gift giver. We don't have to worry about the privilege that our neighbors has. There's enough privilege to go around. Everybody could have privilege. Everybody could be blessed. If we have turned to Jesus, that's what he promises. But envy uh, is pulling and ripping us apart. Envy manifests itself in economics. We want what we do not have, and so we vote to take it from others. This is precisely the sin of Matthew the publican, Matthew the tax collector. Um, this is in a, it is the sin of theft, and it is the sin of trusting in the power of man and the power of government. What is the outcome when two wolves and one sheep vote on what to have for dinner? You know, right. <laughs> and as I've been describing here, envy really at the heart of it doesn't trust God as a good gift giver. It really doesn't. It, envy doesn't believe that work is the means through which God blesses. Envy believes that it's will never have because another person is uh, is having it. Meanwhile, the person really having it um, is the government, stealing about fifty percent of all your income through taxes, both known and unknown. Another one, we're not going to spend as much time on this one, but partiality is an economic sin. Let's just read one particular passage, if you would. Exodus chapter 30, verse 15. Brother Henry, would you get that? Exodus 30, verse 15. I'm going to stand over here so the mic can pick you up. Exodus 30, 15. The rich shall not give more, and the poor shall not give less than the half shekel checked. When you give the Lord's offering to make an atonement for your lives. All right, that's good. So we could go on many, many verses that say the exact same thing. Taxes were to be equitable, equal. Same percentage for everyone. Same thing with tithing. 
You notice in our church we don't have a, um, a, a scale. What's it called, Aaron, in the tax code? We do not have a progressive tithe. <laughs> tithe is 10%. That means it's equitable. You want equitable economics? You make it equitable according to the definition that we used to have. Right? Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and unfortunately, when you have a progressive scale and you have all the other corruption, the rich don't pay. Not what, not what the working poor are paying. No. So that, that's another class. But the Bible says time and time again, no partiality. You want justice? Stop showing partiality. Don't show partiality to anyone, whether they're rich or poor. No one, no one gets um, unjust breaks. The, every person that walks in here, whether they are rich or poor, we teach God calls tithing. It's 10% for everyone. It's equal. Right? That's the way it should be with our civil government as well. Just as in the Old Testament, under the Mosaic Law and under the constitutional monarchy of Saul, there was a head tax. Equal. No impartiality. No partiality. Leviticus 19.15, Exodus 23.3, Deuteronomy 1.17, some other verses on that. Moving on, how about debt? I've taught on this so much that I don't need to say too much more about it. But the rich rules over the poor and the borrower is slave to the lender. When you are in debt... You take on a subordinate role. You're not the head, you're the tail. We want to be people who lend money and not borrow money. And we want to get there at some point through God's blessings. Right? Our nation, I found this statistic. I thought it would be funny to pull up an old one. 2008, we are in $10 trillion worth of debt. I don't know what it is now. But it sounds like we don't think of, we don't, 23 trillion now? 28? Yeah. I, I don't think they believe in numbers anymore. I, I really don't think they believe in, in math anymore. They don't believe in it. Yeah, we don't have time to get into it. But the problem is we keep voting for this. Theft. Theft through inflation. Theft through redistribution. Theft through power. Theft through envy. That will not build back better. I promise you. I'm not even trying. It will not. It will lead to... More of the same. It will lead to class warfare. It will lead to using the economic, economics as a political weapon. This is not the way forward. Right, it is. Deuteronomy 15, 6. For the Lord your God will bless you as he promised you, and you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. And you shall rule over many nations, but they shall not rule over you. You see, when a nation is turning to the Lord, they can expect to be blessed instead of being under the judgment that our nation is. The 28 trillion being the, one of the most obvious examples and the fact that we keep voting for more. Deuteronomy 28:44. He shall lend to you and you shall not lend to him. He shall be the head and you shall be the tail. These are illustrations of national blessings to a nation that would turn to the Lord. Amen? All right. If a nation is faithful to God, then Deuteronomy 28, 12, the Lord will open up to you his good treasury, the heavens, to give the rain to your land in its season and to bless all the work of your hands. And you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. Amen. The cool thing is about that is like God could just give those nations as much as they need for today. 
but he's choosing to, you know, promise to, to bless with enough in excess that he, we can lend to other nations to be a blessing to others. Exactly. And, and, and even, but now, because envy is in our hearts, even when we have enough, it's not enough. It's never enough. We have to have more, 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 which is why we have to have more debt, more, pay more interest rates, more bondage, and more taxation. All of this come, this is why we have such excessive taxes. All right? What does envy in the hearts of a people, the tyranny of sin in the hearts of people, jealousy and covetousness and idolatry, partiality, showing partiality to people economically, indebtedness and unlimited government lead to? Taxes. Lots and lots of taxes. This is exactly what God promised in 1 Samuel chapter 8 when they wanted a king like all the other nations. God said he's going to heavy tax you to build up his treasuries, to build up his war, war chests, to build up his armies. He's going to enslave you and he's going to tax you. Okay? Yeah, but that's the Old Testament. Moving on. <laughs> Sin taxes, user fees, import taxes, excise taxes, the costs of overregulation, inflation. These are all the taxes we don't know about. These are the secret ones. And Nick, jump in here any minute, okay? Because I'm, I'm just laying out the principles and the guardrails. I'm not an economist. But these are, I found this list. These, this is a decent list of the things that we pay that are taxes but that aren't um, on the receipt. Do you know what I mean? There's a tax on the receipt, but inside that, hidden, are all manner of taxes that have come to you. Right? We could, we could probably go on for days. Um, some estimate that we're paying about 50% of our income to the, um, to the government. And you say, well, but we want to take care of the poor. I think 55% of our taxes goes to entitlement programs to the poor. But listen, guys, you understand that poverty is more than just not having money. Poverty is, is spiritual. Poverty is mental. It's emotional. It's relational. It, you're not helping the poor um, by just handing them loads of money in exchange for political loyalty. You're enslaving the poor. When you give the, a poor person 600 bucks, um, you, saw, you know what happens. You know who gets that 600 bucks. Rich people. Corporations. China. I mean, think about all the money that we are sending to China for trinkets. And they're getting rich. And they're becoming the head and we're becoming the tail. And that's part of the judgment. That's happening. And the only way we're going to um, grow in, in wealth is if we stop spending and save. We have to stop consuming everything on our lusts. We have to get control of our envy. The reason we can't save is because of so much covetousness and greed and envy. And it's got to start right here in our hearts at the house of God. Amen. We have got to say, enough is enough. It's time to save up for a rainy day, to save up for inheritance, to save up for investment, to save up for meeting other people's needs, to save up for tithing and generosity and free will offerings, and, and to uh, let our lights shine in both town and in church and in family. We've got to stop, we've got to stop consuming everything on all the different things we spend money on. Nehemiah 9.37 lays out the judgment. 
And the promised land's rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. This is the reason we are under um, political tyranny because we are enslaved to sin. Christ deals with us covenantally. It's not random. He is ruling over the nations. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please, and we are in great distress. And it's going to get worse. It's going to get worse unless there is repentance. Mark my words. I think you all know that. All right. um, Is that it? Is that all I had? That's it. That's all a bunch of bad news. Okay. <laughs> Next week, we, dis- we discuss the good news. <laughs> Next week, we show what God, how God could bless us if we would repent. All right? So you'll, you'll just have to keep your spirits up as best as you can until next week. <laughs> your bad dream that ended right at the, at the worst part. <laughs> all right. Y'all have a great Lord's Day.